Well, good morning, church. Uh, glad to be back with you. And we are especially glad. Night family, you are back. Yes. Praise the Lord. Uh, we do hope that you are rested and uh, we praise God for you. You were missed. Uh, but as an evidence of God's grace, this church does not revolve around any one of us, but around Christ. And so here we are still doing the same thing we did when you left, gathering to exalt Christ. And brother, I hope you're ready to preach. Because... Uh, I'm, I'm ready for a little bit of a break. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, and also just, uh, so we just, we, we decided this morning to be a really good idea to, on the night that we actually have one hour less of sleep to have Family Worship Sunday. So parents, a gift to you. Uh, you can come thank me later uh, for that. But uh, kids, it is a joy to have you in here with us this morning. Uh, and as we think about Psalm 111, kids, here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen for two ways. That you can praise the Lord. And so when you go home this afternoon, I want you to tell your parents, Mommy, Daddy, this is how I want to praise the Lord. And so there's two ways for you to listen on this morning. But I wonder uh, if you've ever stood in something so large that you immediately felt small. I remember when I was going to backpack with Nathan and his brother, actually, to the Grand Tetons and pulling up and literally seeing these ice-capped mountains poking the clouds. And then we went to, we, at night we looked up in the sky and it was as black as I had ever seen it. And it looked like somebody had taken a handful of glitter and thrown it on a black piece of paper and just lit up with stars. And I remember that in that moment, I did not boast how great I was. I did not say, wow, I am really, really large. I didn't do that. Maybe for you, it's something like the Grand Canyon. You've gone there and you, you've peered into the depth and you feel little. Or maybe, I know some of you have seen the northern lights. You, you stand and you see the, the sky magically lighting up. Maybe it's the beach. You, you look in one direction or the other and it's just miles and miles of sand. Or you look out in the horizon and you know the water just keeps going and going and going. And the waves crash with power. Maybe it's not just things in creation. But even things made by human hands. No one stands in front of the pyramids in Egypt or the Colosseum in Rome, and boast of their personal prowess. Right? No one stands in front of the Eiffel Tower or the Burj Khalifa and talks about how tall they are. Kids, for you, maybe it's a roller coaster or a Disney World or a theme park. It's something just massive and big. Here's what's amazing about experiences like that. We feel incredibly small, and yet it feels right and good. In those moments, we behold something larger than ourselves. We feel how little we are, and there's a profound sense of joy. And then what do we do after we do that? We go tell others. We go tell them, hey, listen, you should go to this place. You should do this thing. You should come with me and and see how wonderful and great this is. We behold, then we boast. We, We praise, and then we proclaim. It's what we do. So here's the question. Why? Why does feeling so small in front of something so awe-inspiring feel so good? And why are we so eager to share those experiences with others? Well, it points to the ultimate reason we're created. You were made to delight. You were made to delight in something, or we should say someone greater than yourself. And you were made to share that delight with others. So we can say it more precisely, you are made to be part of a community that worships the one true God. That's why you were made. 
And so that's what we'll see this morning as we give our attention to the text that Ray read, Psalm 111. And so over the past several weeks, we've walked through various psalms. And as we've seen, the psalms not only speak to us, but they do what? They speak for us. They give language for every season of the human soul. They uniquely capture portraits of human life and experience. We've seen the psalms call us to be honest with our sin and our rebellion. The psalms call us to be vulnerable in our sorrow. We don't have to put on plastic smiles. We've seen that true life, true joy, a soul-saturated happiness that navigates life's trials and amplifies life's happiness comes as we trust in the Lord and treasure Him above all things. There's two ways to live. If we go back to Psalm 1. A couple of weeks ago, we walked through Psalm 88. And it walked us through the valley of the shadow of death, didn't it? Well, this morning, we climb up to the mountaintops of praise as we go to Psalm 111. So sometimes the Psalter, that's the book of the Psalms, is called the book of praise. And that's for good reason, because dozens and dozens of the Psalms are dedicated to praising the Lord. In fact, if you go read the last five Psalms, you'll notice that each one of them begin and end with the same call. Praise the Lord. That's how the book ends. And so it's appropriate to conclude our short study in the Psalms with with Psalm 111, a a psalm of pure, unadulterated, soul-erupting praise of the Lord. That's what it is. So you don't notice it in our Bibles, but in the Hebrew, Psalm 111 is an acrostic, meaning that each new line starts with a the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a creative poem trying to strain to praise the Lord. So after that initial praise the Lord... There are 22 sections that match the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And it was probably written like that so it could be easily memorized and recited as God's people praise Him. Maybe like we do the doxology or something like that. So it's easy to call to mind and praise God. And in this psalm, we see the call to praise the Lord and the cause to praise the Lord. The call and the cause. That's how we'll look at the psalm this morning. First, we'll examine the call to praise the Lord. And then we'll look at the cause for praising the Lord. Here's the call. Restoration Church, let us praise the Lord. Verse 1, the psalmist begins, praise the Lord. Or as some of your translations might have, hallelujah. Hallelujah. So right from the outset, we're being summoned to praise the Lord. And the, the psalmist moves on and he models what that looks like. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation. So the psalmist gives us both an example and an exhortation. And and notice the focus of his praise. His heart, mind, affections are set upon the Lord. Did Did you notice the repetition of the covenant name of God in this psalm? It's probably all capital letters in your Bible. Lord. Five times. Verse one, it's twice. And you see it again in verse 2, verse 4, and verse 10. And then keep looking there at your Bible. And, and notice how many times you see the personal pronouns. He, his, or him. Almost 20 times. So well more than 20 times in 10 verses, the psalmist is calling attention to who? To who? God, God the Lord. That's right. Yeah, let's talk back this morning. The Lord. The psalm is radically God-centered. The psalm is not ultimately about you. 
The psalm is not ultimately about me. It's about praising the Lord, remembering what he has done and remembering what he will do. So it's been said that praise and and worship is the art of losing self in the adoration of another. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's losing himself, being swallowed up, wrapped up in the goodness and the greatness and the glory and the beauty and the brilliance and the work and the worth of the Lord. He's responding to the Lord's intoxicating beauty. And notice what he says. How is he doing it? With my what? Whole heart. The psalmist is not simply talking about external actions or experiences. He's not talking about internal emotions. So we cannot reduce worshiping with a whole heart to certain actions or a specific set of experiences or emotions. The the psalmist is talking about a posture, a frame of soul that's honest before God thankful to God, dependent upon God, and desires to delight in God. That's what he's doing. That soul at times can be downcast, like Psalm 88. And that soul at times can be exuberant, like David in Psalm 145, and the psalmist here. So worshiping the Lord with the whole heart is not determined by what we feel, feel, but more by who we fear. Say that again. Worshiping the Lord with our whole heart is not so much by what we feel, but who we fear. That's what verse 10 is getting at. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is wisdom literature. I think we could say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of worship as well. We can't worship the Lord until we rightly fear the Lord. Because that fear is not like, I'm just, I'm afraid. Like I'm afraid of ghosts. I'm afraid of the boogeyman. That's not what the fear is talking about here. It's talking about a reverence of the Lord and a rejoicing in the Lord. It's a a holy tremble mixed with a treasuring of the God Himself. It is awe-inspired affection and a soul-anchoring trust. This fear of the Lord is. So that's what He's doing. Psalmist is not calling us to worship with a token nod here or there, with an undivided heart, as if I can show up on Sundays and do the right things then go about my life. It's not what he's talking about. He's not just paying lip service, but he's humbly before God. So the psalmist is worshiping with a whole heart and notice where he is doing it. Look there in the text, in verse 1, where? In the company of the upright, in the congregation. In the company of the upright, in the congregation. So notice the rest of the psalm has a corporate focus. It's not just about him. It's about God's people as a whole. So this is not isolated, individualistic, lone ranger worship. This is not private devotion, but public declaration in the congregation, the assembly of God's people. Yes, we should have a personal relationship with God. We should praise Him in our homes. But that relationship can never be reduced to the privacy of our lives if it's wholehearted. So if we, if we remove ourselves from corporate worship, we're like the coal that's been removed from the fire. Eventually we will grow cold. But when we're around the other coals, when we're around the other people, our worship, our praise grows and it glows hotter and brighter. 
and our hearts stay warm as we hear others worshiping the Lord alongside of us. And so in this first verse, we have the call to praise God with a whole heart, a thankful heart, joining with others in the symphony of God's praise. It's what the call is. In Restoration Church, this informs why we gather here every Sunday morning. As Christians, we get to be part of the congregation that tells of God's greatness. The psalm is reminding us Corporate worship is not primarily about me and my needs. It's about God and His praise. Psalm 111 is telling us that our praise is not just vertical to God, but it's horizontal with others. So I think this is a good time for us to evaluate our understanding of why we come here on Sunday mornings. How do you view this gathering? If we view church as something that exists primarily for my personal good and my individual satisfaction, it's going to be easy to skip Sundays. It's going to be easy to only show up when I have nothing else going on, when my travel plans don't interfere or when my kids' activities don't interrupt. If church is, easy, is, is, is primarily about me, it's going to be easy to show up regularly late. If church is primarily about me, it's going to be easy to stroll in with a prepared latte and an unprepared heart. But, if church is about God and His praise, with His people, I will eagerly long for Sunday morning coming prepared to meet with God's people. Do you prepare to meet with God's people? Parents, do you prepare your children to come and meet with God and His people? Church is about God and His people. I'll, atten- I'll pay attention to how much church I miss. And I'll try to arrange my travel plans when I can to be here. Or even when I can't, I'll gather with some other gospel-believing church and celebrate God's work elsewhere. If church is about me, it's going to be easy to critique the music and say, I didn't like that song, so I'm not going to sing it. I just didn't feel the music today, so I didn't participate. But, if church is about God and His praise... I'll rejoice with every truthful lyric we sing. If church is about me, it's going to be easy to say the sermon didn't really speak to me today. It wasn't relevant to me and my life. But if church is about God and His praise, we will rejoice every time God's Word is faithfully explained and Christ is exalted. See, brothers and sisters, the psalmist is reminding us that we gather not just to consume for the gain of self, but we gather to celebrate the gospel as family. Psalm 111 is reminding us that worshiping with our brothers and sisters is a normal and necessary part of praising God. Gathering for worship on the Lord's day should be one of the most natural things we do in the company of the congregation. So, elephants travel in. Herds. Good job, Travis. Geese fly in. Flocks or V's. It's what they do, right? Well, Christians do what? We gather for worship. It's what we do. It's natural to us. So yes, we can sing that great gospel song in the shower. You can sing along with that Spotify playlist in, at home. It's fine and good to listen to that famous preacher podcast. But nothing, nothing substitutes gathering in the congregation. 
Corporate worship is not just a good idea, it's crucial. That's why if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what are God's people doing? They gather together for worship. That's what happens in Genesis, and that's what happens in Revelation and all the way through. So Scripture gives us both the pattern and the prescription for the priority of corporate worship. Scripture gives us both the pattern and the prescription for a priority of corporate worship. So when we miss gathering with God's people, we feel the soul-draining consequences. It's like forgetting to eat. We suffer because of hunger, not because of guilt. See, there's, I'm hungry and I need to eat is radically different than I didn't eat. I should eat again. So when we miss, our souls suffer the consequences. And so we, but we don't gather out of guilt. We gather to feast upon grace. We don't have to go to church. We get to go to church. We get to see Jesus in the lives of others, and we get to show Jesus to one another. And remember, that our praise is preparing us and giving us a taste of heaven. We'll see that more in just a minute. So as I read recently, it's this idea that we are not lonely pilgrims on an individual journey. We are a community of faith marching toward glory as exiles in the world. Beloved by God and beloved by one another. It's what we get to do every week. And Restoration Church, I praise God for you. Every week you spur me on to love Jesus. Every week, I hear you sing and pray and praise Jesus. So many of you show up here every week with a whole heart, excited, expecting to hear from God and His Word and ready to encourage others. I praise God for that. You're thankful for the theology of the songs we sing. You're thankful for the robustness of the prayers we offer. What a joy to know so many of you are a part of our community groups where you try to live this out and prepare and rehearse the gospel together. I'm learning more and more of people arranging their travel plans so they can get back on Sundays and, and worship with us, paying attention to how much church peop- they miss. Praise God. Praise God for the ways you prize Jesus. So Restoration Church, let, let's eagerly and expectantly gather together praising God with our whole heart. And what should we praise Him for? Well, the psalm goes on and tells us. Essentially, we have two things. We should praise the Lord for what He's done. We should praise the Lord for who He is. So Restoration Church, let's praise the Lord for what He has done. Look there at verses 2 and 3. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. So in these verses, it seems as though the psalmist is calling our attention in in a general way to the works of God. Maybe the the works of creation. And the reason why I say that, because that same word work is repeatedly used in the Psalms this way. So I'll give you two examples. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work, same word, of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work, same word, of your hands. And so the psalmist is saying, listen, the sermons of the skies and the proclamation of creation reveal something about the eternal nature of God. As beams lead back to the sun, so creation leads back to the Creator. In fact, over the, the main entrance of the Cavendish Laboratory, which is the uh, University of Cambridge's Department of Physics, it has an inscription over the top of it. You know what it is? It is this. The works of the Lord are great. 
and sought out of all of them that have pleasure therein. For those that read the King James Version, you'll notice that's the same as Psalm 111, verse 2. And so we don't have to separate the everyday work of our lives from praising the Lord. Do you hear that, children? So everyday life is part of praising God. And so the wonders of creation, praise God. The complexities of science, praise God. Kids, when you do your math and it makes sense and there's coherence, praise God. It's a gift from Him. He's an ordered God. When, when some of you that are scientists stare through the microscope and you see stuff that I'll never understand, praise God. It's a gift of creation. When you stare at that dandelion and all of its interesting, when you see the silliness of the squirrel, let it awaken your soul to praise God because that praise out there will help us praise God even more in here. So Restoration Church, praise God for what He's done in creation. Great are His works. Study them. Delight in them. But oh, 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 oh. Never, never stop there. Never stop there. The Lord's greatest work is not creation, but salvation. The great truth is the Lord is not just a transcendent creator. He is a personal redeemer. And that's what the psalmist goes on to talk about. Verses 4 through 6, and down to verse 9 even, the psalmist begins to talk about the more beautiful work of redemption. Restoration Church, let's praise him for redemption. Look again at those verses. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of nations. So in verse 4, it says he's caused his wondrous works or wonders to be remembered. And again, the psalmist is reflecting on something specific here. <clears throat> Not just any wonders, but I think he has in mind this, this is the same word as used in Exodus over and over again to describe God's work for his people specifically. Specifically, the Exodus itself, when God through, deli- through Moses delivers his people from the bondage of slavery. So, one example Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Same word. You stretched out your hand. The earth swallowed them up. You have led them in your steadfast love, the people you have redeemed. So in verse 4, the psalmist is referring to the miraculous work of God, bringing out his people from slavery through parting the Red Sea, calling them to remember that specific work. In fact, you know what it says? Notice what the text says. He caused it to be remembered. How did he do that? The Passover. Right? So in faith, God's people slaughtered an unblemished lamb, spread the blood over their doorpost, so the angel of death would pass them over and God would lead them out of slavery. And then what did he do? He set up the Passover meal that they were to celebrate as a commemoration of God's deliverance. So they would regularly remember that God delivered them from a foreign land where they were under the bondage of slavery and a sentence of death. But do you remember what happened after they were led out of Egypt? They started to do what? They grumbled. They grumbled literally three days 
after this deliverance, they started complaining that the water was bitter and they didn't have enough food. So God, in His kindness, miraculously rains down bread, manna, from heaven. But after a while, what happens? They get sick of manna. And they're like, oh. Remember when we were slaves and we had that really good steak and veggies? We would really love some steak. What does God do? He gives them meat. Go read Numbers 11. It's so much meat, they eat it, it comes out of their nostrils. Yeah. The Bible is not boring, Elocade. Right? But all this is what the psalmist is talking about in verse 5. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant. So he's recounting a specific covenant. He's he's remembering the promise God has made to His people. So even when they were faithless, God is faithful. So back in Genesis, we read that God made a covenant with a man named Abram. It says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. God makes a promise, a covenant. He will bring his people to be in his place under his rule, enjoying his blessing. What do we read in verse 6? He has shown them, his people, the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Just like we said, through, through sovereign power, the plagues, the battles, God brings his people into the promised land that they might enjoy his rule and blessing. And it goes well from there, right? No. Wah, wah, wah. Israel sins again and disobeys God. But even so, the psalmist is saying, God, you are faithful. You remember your covenant for how long? Forever. So that's what we see in verse 9. He's praising God for redemption. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Right? So did you notice that as the psalmist glances back, he's also leaning forward. Five times in this psalm, we see that word forever. The psalmist is praising God for what He's done and what He's yet to do. He's done it, and He will do it again. So think about the story the psalmist is remembering and praising God for and and hoping in. He's he's gathered the congregation. He's in church. He's saying, let's praise the Lord. Let's praise the Lord for what He's done. Let's praise the Lord for the work of redemption and our hope and what's to come. So if we fill out His words just a little bit, I I think we can easily hear something like this. Remember, church, We were in a foreign land in bondage under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with a promise of deliverance. We trusted in that promise of God through faith in a substitute. We took shelter under the blood of the Lamb and through powerful works, He defeated our enemy and led us out of slavery, meeting our need all along the way despite our grumbling. And now even though we, we, des- we don't deserve it and we disobeyed, He's leading us to the promised land where through blood sacrifices at the temple, His presence will be in our midst. And we know He'll make good on His covenant because He remembers it forever. Well, Christian brothers and sisters, I hope this story sounds familiar to you. 
See, this is not just Israel's story. It is our story. We too should praise God for redemption. He sent redemption to His people. Amen? See, we too were under the bondage of sin, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, Jesus Christ, the one who stands between us and God, came with a promise of deliverance. He said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom, a redemption for many. And unlike Israel and unlike us, Jesus did not grumble or complain when he was in the wilderness without food. Instead, he turned to God and trusted God and worshipped God alone, living a perfect life. But he offered himself up for our sins. On the cross, he, Jesus took our place with nail-pierced hands. Jesus took our guilt with a beaten, naked body, mocked by men. He took our shame. With a cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bore our judgment of sin. And with a final gasp of air, as Jesus suffocated and breathed His last, He took our sentence, death. Now even though we don't deserve it, we turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus. He's our Passover lamb. He is our substitute. We have shelter under His blood. And because He did not stay dead but rose again, we know the enemy is defeated through the powerful work of God. And now we no longer offer sacrifices at the temple because Jesus is our sacrifice and Jesus is our temple. He is the sacrifice and He is the meeting place between a sinful people and a holy God. And so like the psalmist, we rejoice. And we do so with a view toward the inheritance of the nations, the promised land. We look forward to the promised land of heaven where all things will be restored back to the way they're supposed to be. God's people in God's place under God's rule enjoying God's blessing forever made possible through Jesus Christ, our redemption. Restoration Church. Let's praise God for the redemption. How do we do that? Well, the text tells us. He's caused His works to be remembered. By giving us a divinely inspired account. So we should study them. That's what the text says. Great are the works of the Lord, but all who study them. Delight yourself in God's Word that you might remember His wondrous works. But that's not the only way to remember. Just like God causes covenant and deliverance to be remembered among the Israelites through a Passover meal, is this not what we do? It's what we did last Sunday. We remember our, the new covenant through a Passover meal, through the Lord's Supper. Remembering our redemption. And just like Israel, praise God for redemption in the congregation, we too praise God for redemption in the congregation. So God is so kind, He knows we are so forgetful that He set up the rhythm of our lives so that every seven days we get to come back here and remember our redemption. Tell how kind God is. So we remember. So each week, we sing of blood-bought forgiveness and freedom and hope in healing. We sing each week, remembering and rehearsing the gospel. Every time we gather together, church, we confess our sins of rebellion. Why? 
so that we're reminded we're not reconciled to God by our perfection, but by the perfection of Christ. Every time we gather, we pray for the gospel. You heard Travis do it this morning to advance to our neighbors and the nations. Why? Because we remember redemption comes not just to us, but to all tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples. Every time we gather, we sit under God's word. Why? So that we're reminded and refreshed yet again of what God has done, is doing, and will do. See, our hope does not lie on what we can do but what God has done and is doing. And so we sit under the preaching of His Word. So Restoration Church, our Sunday gatherings are a time to sing the Gospel, share life, and remember the story God telling in history and in our lives. And this spurs us on to a hope-filled future. So every church gathering is an invitation to remember what God has done for you. Your guilt your sin and shame no longer have dominion. So for those trusting in Christ, whatever sin you've committed, I don't care what it is, whatever sin you have committed, Christ paid your penalty being nailed to a cross. For those trusting in Christ, whatever sins, violence, abuses happen to you, it does not have to define you. That shame does not have to hold you because Christ took it on the cross and washes you pure and clean. Whatever pain and darkness you're going through, Jesus provides hope because He entered into the darkness. Psalm 88, amen? He entered into it, but He didn't stay there. He rose again. Brothers and sisters, every church gathering is a dress rehearsal for heaven. Every week, we practice our future. I got permission to tell this this morning, but Elicade... Uh, will often be found prancing around our home in her mother's high heel shoes, scarf, jacket, coat, or shirt or something. And in that moment, Ella Cade's rehearsing the future. She's practicing what Lord willing will be, a godly woman. So it is with us every week when we gather here. We get to practice our future. And that's why when we gather, we don't just look back, we lean forward. Remembering this world's not our home, we're pilgrims. So let me encourage you this week to take time to praise God for what he's done. Reflect on your salvation. When were you saved? When were you redeemed? And who shared that good news with you? Maybe go tell them this week and remember God's work saying, thank you for telling about Christ. As you gather together in community groups and disciple and relationships, remind each other of God's grace. Remind each other of specific ways God is working out His redemption as we hope in the redemption that is to come. And for my non-Christian friends, I'm, I'm thankful that you're here with us this morning. Uh, we count it a privilege to have you join with us. We obviously think there's no better place for you to be than other than here on Sunday mornings. And, and I'm guessing some of this resonates with you. I don't have to convince you the world is broken. I don't have to convince you this world is not the way it's supposed to be. I don't have to convince you that if we're honest, we often feel like slaves to our own desires and emotions or held captive by the approval of others. I don't have to convince you that you fail, that we fail, I fail to meet even my own moral standards, much less God's. I don't have to convince you 
that self-effort, self-help only lasts for so long. But what if there was another way? What if there was another story that made sense of your story? Well, I tell you, it's the story of redemption. Because this story answers the questions we all ask. Who am I? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? What solution do I have? What hope is there? If you're asking those questions, let me invite you to come talk to me, you can talk to Travis, anybody you've seen up front, talk to the friend who brought you. But we believe that story answers the story and makes sense of our individual stories. So the psalmist is calling us to praise God for what he's done, but that's not it. It's also calling us to praise God for who he is. So Restoration Church, let's praise God for who he is. Verse 7. The works of his hands, the Lord's, are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. So here the psalmist points to the character of God. He is faithful and just. His word, which reflects his character, is unchanging, trustworthy, faithful, upright. So the psalmist cannot talk about the works of God without declaring the worth of God as it's revealed in the Word of God. It's what he's doing. In fact, if you noticed, throughout this psalm, we've moved between actions and attributes. What God has done and who God is. So verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work. Action. His righteousness endures forever. Attribute. Verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Action. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Attribute. Verse 9, he sent, his, he sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Action. Holy and awesome is His name. Attribute. So you cannot separate the actions of God from His attributes any more than you can separate wetness from swimming. They necessarily go together. So true praise meditates and marvels on what God has done and, and who God is. Remember, beams lead back to the sun. And so, righteous, faithful, gracious, compassionate actions lead back to a righteous, faithful, gracious, compassionate actor. So like the psalmist, our praise should be thanksgiving, moving back between God's work and God's worth, His actions and His attributes. So just from this psalm alone, let's see how we can praise God for his character, his righteousness. He always acts in accordance with right and good. His grace. God is good to us when we don't deserve it. We are saved by Christ. Mercy. He's mercy and compassionate. God cares for his children. He's attentive in times of suffering and sorrow. He meets our needs. Faithfulness and trustworthiness. God always does what He says. He remembers His covenant forever. God does not change. His justice. God will not let wickedness go unpunished. Justice will be served. His holiness. God is perfectly pure and beautiful. His eternality. 
God is forever. No beginning and no end. Every aspect of God's character is inexhaustible. Brothers and sisters, as we praise God, as we declare His glory and herald His goodness, let's focus on not just what He's done, but who He is. As you read God's Word, be attentive to the character of God. Don't just ask, what did He do? What's in it for me? Ask, what does this tell me about God Himself? As you pray, think about not only what sins you need to confess or what things you need to request, But take time just to praise God for who He is. Here's a penetrating question that came to me as I was praying this morning. Parents, if all your children knew about the character of God is what they heard you praise Him for, what would they know? If that's all they knew about the character of God, what would they know about God? Because God's character is the foundation of upon which we stand and shout in times of triumph. And it's the foundation upon which we kneel and cry in times of tragedy. So Restoration Church, let's praise God for who He is. Let's adore God, the self-sufficient, self-existent, holy, Lord of Lord, King of kings, eternal, immutable, unspotted, pure, righteous, inexhaustibly good, just, sovereign, gracious, compassionate, irresistible, beautiful, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is matchless in perfection and infinitely greater than our best thoughts. Let's praise that God. Because you know why? Holy and awesome is His name. And His praise will endure forever. So Psalm 111 is summoning us to praise God, to declare His glory with thankful, whole-filled hearts in worship in the congregation. As we come before the Lord and praise Him, we're in awe of someone so much larger than we are. In so many ways, it makes us feel and realize that we are small. And yet it feels right. It feels right. And here's another reason why. Though we're small, we're not insignificant. The Lord is not just larger than us, but He loves us. So much so that He sent Jesus to redeem us and rescue us. And not because He just loves us, but as we say often, He actually likes us. And so we get to look forward to eternity with Jesus forever, all of God's people together. And so we're small but we're not insignificant. And all this flows from who God is. Just, right, good, holy, gracious, eternal, trustworthy, and true. And that's why we praise Him. So Restoration Church, let's praise God in the congregation as we journey toward heaven together. Amen? Let me pray. God, we do gather to praise Your name as we sing, as we pray, as we confess, as we repent, as we are assured of our pardon and peace with You, as we read Your Word, we're mindful that You are God and we are not. We are so thankful that You sent redemption to us in Christ. And we are so thankful that You set up the rhythm of our lives to be regularly remembered. And we're thankful that You made us, that we need community to remind us we can't go at this alone. So we praise You this morning for You are glorious, holy, beautiful, power, sovereign, 
steadfast, pure, righteous, eternal. We praise you, Lord. And we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.